0: Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10. We're going to continue to work our way through 1 Corinthians. And uh, unless God disrupts, and if we do, we'll take a little detour, but today we're going to stay on course and uh, see if we can get through chapter 10. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray. And as we pray, I just, want, I just want to encourage you. I want you just to take a moment. I want you to close your eyes. And just in your heart, I want you to ask the Lord to work in you, to move in you by His Spirit. I want you to ask God to speak to you through His Word. And ask Him to change you and transform you and conform you in the areas that need to be. Just say, Lord, mold me and shape me to the image of your Son. Would you just ask the Lord to do that? Lord, mold me and shape me to the image of your Son. Father, as we, as we go through the Word this morning, as we look at the Scripture, as we read, as we hear your eternal Word, God, we ask that you would mold us and shape us, and transform us and conform us, To the image of your son. We ask Lord that you would have your way. In our lives. And through our lives. We ask God that you would help us to see ourselves differently. That you would help us to see ourselves as you see us. And as you know us. And that you would help us to understand God. That we are not our own. That we belong to you. That we were bought and purchased at a costly price by the very blood of Jesus. We ask God that you would cause our lives to bring glory and honor to your name. Amen. 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 All right, we're going to read together this chapter. I know it's a lot, it's 33 verses, but I like to do this because uh, this is how uh, how the, the early church would have done it. They didn't have chapter and verse, so let's just pretend like we're in Corinth, and one day a messenger comes, and he brings this letter from the Apostle Paul, the Apostle who founded the church, who was instrumental in maybe many of you coming to faith in Christ. And now this apostle has sent a letter to the church. And so they're not going to read this letter in small chunks. They may, eventually they'll keep it, they'll copy it, they'll spread it to the other churches. That's that's how we've come to possess the scripture as we know it today. But They would have all gathered together as the church, and they would have listened as this letter was read. And so, we're not going to read the whole book of Corinthians. We're just going to read a chapter, 33 verses. So let's listen. And this is why I wanted you to pray what we prayed just before we read the Scripture. So let's listen to the word of the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. "...observe Israel after the flesh, are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons." You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner, and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no questions for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you, And for conscience' sake, for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God." Give no offense, either to the Jew, or to the Greeks, or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Okay, so let's talk about this chapter. And we'll break it into sections as we go. So let's look at these first five verses... And Paul, as he is writing, he see this word, moreover, brethren. So, you see that this is a continuation of, of Paul's thought. So, when he began this subject back in chapter 8, this specific question about eating things offered to idols, Paul is still talking about this same theme, but... In talking about this, Paul's bringing in a whole lot of other things that apply, not to just meat offered to idols, whether we can eat that or not. He's talking about bigger issues of our Christian liberty and how we interact and relate to one another. So I want you to see that really, in this whole letter, in this whole book, Everything Paul is communicating, and this is actually true for the Scripture. This is true for every letter Paul wrote. It's true for the Gospels. It's true for everything. Everything Paul is communicating, Paul is communicating with one another in view. In other words, Paul is instructing the Corinthians that the way you are to live your life, you're to live your life with one another in view. Now, that's, that's kind of a broad-based statement. And we can misapply that truth. We can over-apply it, we can underapply it. We can misapply it, we can fail to apply it. And so we need to understand when it's right for us to walk in our liberty, when it's right for us to lay down our liberty for the sake of others, So let's go through this book and let's talk about these things. So Paul is continuing this and he says, Moreover, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware that all of our fathers passed under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Boy, now who's Paul talking about? Paul's talking about the Jews In the Old Testament, so we could go back to the to the book of of Exodus, and we could see the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, and they're in the wilderness. And Paul is saying, that rock that followed them, that water they drank, that was Christ. That manna they ate, that was Christ. Now it wasn't literally Christ. But Paul is saying those things spoke of Christ. God did those things. God provided those things. God did everything so that Christ would be in view. And he's saying to these Corinthians that Israel was no less the people of God than they were. He says, hey, the Jews aren't less the people of God than you are. And you're no less the people of God than the Jews were. Because what's in view here... For Jew, for Gentile, for all who believe, what's in view is Christ. Christ is the thing that makes us one body. Christ is the thing that makes us, he is the one who makes us the people of God. So Christ is the object of this. And if Christ is the one in view, then we also understand that Christ and his body. So it's not just Christ, not just the head of Christ, not just the face of Christ, but it's Christ... A complete man, which is Christ and his body. Well, who is the body? Well, we are the body. So this is who we have in view, Christ and his body, as Paul is communicating these things. We can't have Christ without his body, and we can't have his body without Christ. They are one. And we're going to see that Paul graphically demonstrates this in this letter, uh, in just a few verses. So he warns them that like Israel, they are not exempt from falling into sin and idolatry. He reminds them, hey, the fathers, remember those guys? They were all baptized into Moses. They were guided by Moses through the the sea, under the cloud. They drank of the same spiritual rock, ate of the same spiritual bread. They were the people of God, but God warned them, about falling, about getting into idolatry, and so Paul is giving a warning here to the Corinthian church. He says, hey, Israel was no less the people of God than than you are, and God warned Israel that they were not exempt from falling into sin and idolatry. And then in verse 6, he says, now these things, what things? The fact that they passed through the cloud, passed through the sea, ate of the... Uh, bread, drank of the rock, these things, the fact that God, verse 5, was not pleased with most of them and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness because of their unbelief, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not do certain things or to the intent that we should do certain things. So examples, these are examples we are not to follow. Paul's saying, God wrote these things down for us as examples for us not to follow. So now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not, verse 6, lust after evil things. If you're writing references down, all of these have an Old Testament reference. So understand that as they're reading this, And he mentions they passed through the sea, and they were under the cloud. Understand that they would have understood what Paul was talking about. Paul wasn't making just a reference that had no connection. So Paul was taking them, for instance, back to the book of Exodus, when it recorded them passing through the sea and being under the cloud. So when he says, don't lust after evil things, he's referencing a reference in the book of Numbers, Numbers 11, verses 4 through 6. These things became our examples to the the intent that we should not become idolaters. He's referencing Exodus 32, verses 4 through 6. This is the story in Exodus where God says, don't intermarry with these people because they will lead you into idolatry God wasn't a racist this wasn't about race this was about their worship it had nothing to do with the color of anyone's skin it had to do with who was the object of this of these people's worship and God says if you intermarry with these people that are worshipping false gods You are going to be pulled into idolatry. And if you fall into idolatry, you fall under a curse. So he says, Don't become part, don't become idolaters. And so they understood this is. What God was referencing. God's reminding us of what happened to the children of Israel in the book of Exodus. Do not commit sexual immorality. Because in that day it says 23,000 fell in one day. This story is recorded in Numbers chapter 25 verses 1 and verse 9. Actually Numbers says 24,000. But you see what happened was. Is that Moses instructed that all the leaders be hung for their Rebellion against God and then a plague killed all the rest of the people. A total of 24,000 people died in one day. That's a lot of death. And people say, well, how can God be a loving God that would, would do that? And the answer to that question is, we need to understand Our sinfulness. So we, we can't just say that sin doesn't matter. Sin mattered so much. Listen church. Sin mattered so much that God sent His Son to die because of it. Now I would ask any one of you parents, would you give your child for the sin of a people that hated you? God did. We were God's enemies. We, we didn't love God when Jesus died for us. No man loved God. But yet, even though we were God's enemy, God sent His Son to die for His enemies because of sin. To, to redeem a people God would choose to love in spite of their sin in spite of their rebellion. And if we don't understand the magnitude of humanity's sinfulness, we'll never understand the magnitude of God's grace. If we think sin is just, you know, if we're just flipping about that, we'll never really understand the magnitude of our salvation, of what God did for us. We are never able to stand above God and to put God on the witness stand in an effort to judge God. We are not the judge. God is the judge. And so Paul says, these things became our examples that we should not commit sexual immorality. That we should not tempt Christ. This is a reference back to Exodus 17. In Exodus 17, the scripture says that the children of Israel tempted God. And they said to Moses, why did you bring us to this wilderness? We would rather remain in Egypt. And they're complaining against God. And and Moses said to the children of Israel, why are you tempting God? And God and Moses goes to God and he says, "God, these people are ready to stone me. I don't know what to do." And Paul says, "Don't tempt Christ." When you read that story in Exodus, you see that God knew exactly what the children of Israel needed. They complained and they Wine and they cried and God would give them, but, but there would be a consequence because of their rebellion. And the lesson for us all throughout Scripture is God knows what we need. He knows before we ask. Now that doesn't mean we don't ask. But there's a difference between asking God and complaining against God with a rebellious heart. And there's a difference, I believe, between a heart that's been broken and hurt. It's kind of like my animals. You know, if my animals have a wound, my animals love me and I love my animals. But if my animals have a wound, sometimes if I deal with them, they, they may snap at me or bark at me. Well, I don't kill my dog because he snapped at me. Because I understand there's there's a deeper problem here. Listen, God knows how to discern your heart. God knows when people are just flat out in rebellion versus people that have such brokenness and woundedness that that sometimes they just react in ways that, that would appear to be anger and rebellion. God knows. God understands. And God knows how to give us what we need. He knows how to provide for us what we need. And so this is part of, how do we come to God? How do we ask? It reminds me of Philippians 4.6, you know, be anxious for nothing, but in all things through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Can we come to God, even in our brokenness, even in our anxiety, in our greatest need, can we come to Him with thankfulness? Doesn't mean we understand everything, doesn't mean we've got all the answers, but, but can we, first of all, I mean, think about this church, can we be thankful that we can even come to God? That, that we can come to Him. The fact that we can come to Him is, is, is really unbelievable. How are we able to come to Him? We're able to come to Him because of what Christ has done. We're able to come to Him by the grace of God. we come to him. Not complaining, Paul says, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not complain. Now don't confuse that with you should never ask God questions, because I think God is absolutely big enough to handle our questions. Now, I actually think that we do more people a disservice by telling them, don't ask God that, don't question God. There's a difference between complaining and questioning. There's a difference between crying out from a broken and hurt heart and just being downright rebellious. There's a huge difference. So, when we ask God our questions, we just need to be prepared for His answer. And, or, we need to be prepared for His lack of an answer. Anybody ever been there? Anybody ever had questions for God, and God didn't give you a satisfactory answer? Or maybe no answer at all? That doesn't mean God doesn't care, God doesn't love you, it doesn't mean God doesn't know what you need. He absolutely does all of the above. So this is not an issue about God. This is really an issue about us and us trusting Him. This was the issue, if I could use that word, with the children of Israel in the wilderness. They didn't trust God. They were totally and completely driven by the externals, and they didn't trust God, and they complained, and they rebelled, and they tried to do things their own way, and they tried to kick their leader uh, out of power and and put other people into power, and they did all kinds of things because they couldn't get beyond their perceived need and the fact that they didn't think God was responding quick enough. So we'll just take matters into our own hand. And so the lesson of Scripture, I mean, really from the beginning to the end, teaches us, instructs us, that it's never good for us to take things into our own hands to try to resolve our own problems but but what we are to do is to trust god to come to him in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving when paul talks about the peace that passes understanding this is not about god finally giving you the understanding of all your questions say okay now i understand okay now i can have peace no it's having peace even though you, you don't understand anything. I don't have an answer for anything. I don't understand anything. But God gives you his peace. And in his time, he knows how to make all things beautiful. He may, he may not give you the answers. He may reveal, he may not reveal all the reasons and all the ins and all the outs. I digress. I kind of got on a rabbit trail there. But the point is this. Paul says, don't follow the example of of our fathers. As a matter of fact, God, God wrote these things and revealed these things to us so that you would not follow their example. Don't lust after evil things. Don't become idolaters. Don't commit sexual immorality. Don't tempt Christ. Don't complain. Now, all these things, verse 11, now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. I can't dwell there in verse 11, but that's a pretty amazing statement. All these things happened to them as examples. God made examples out of all those people. For who? For us. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So, there were some Corinthians who thought they had it all figured out, who thought they could stand in this place and exercise these rights and do these things, and they had all their theology lined out. Paul said, You know what? There were some people, there were some people about 1,500 years before you guys came along who thought the same thing. And didn't work out so well for them. So his warning here to, to the church, which means it's a warning to us, is, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So you may have rights, but when the rights you stand for lead to idolatry and all manner of sinfulness, he says, take heed lest you fall. So the Corinthians thought they were standing within their rights, within their liberty in Christ, and they were spiritually arrogant and puffed up with all of this knowledge, and they were being warned of the danger of falling. Now, what was the warning? What is this warning of a fall? It's not falling from or losing their salvation. What God gives to us is the gift of eternal life. If I can lose that, or that life comes to an end then it's not eternal. So we need to understand rightly, what is it that they're falling from here? It's a falling from, from the assumption of their salvation in their self-righteousness. So, it's falling from something. It's not an imaginary fall that Paul's talking about. It's a real fall. Their, children of Israel really fell in the wilderness Many, well all except for two of that generation, did not enter into the promise. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that all of those who died in the wilderness, I don't know, were they saved, were they not saved? I don't know the answer to that question. But they all really fell from something, right? So Paul is warning the Corinthian church And it's written for us, so he's warning us that there's really something to fall from. What is it that that, that Paul is warning us that we could fall from? It's a falling from a place of grace in the covenant community. And what Paul is really saying is this, our true nature will ultimately be revealed. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 7. A tree is known by its fruit. Right? I mean, you walk up to an apple tree, no question it's an apple tree. Why? Because it's got apples hanging on it. Right? No, there's no confusion there. Ultimately, a tree will be known by its fruit. So we can't lose the gift of eternal life or it would not be eternal life. We can't lose it mainly because of this truth. We can't lose it because we're not the keepers of that gift. God is the keeper of that gift, not us. God is the giver and the keeper of eternal life. Salvation is not what you possess. Salvation is who possesses you. Christ is your salvation. A religion doesn't save you. A belief system doesn't save you. A modified behavior system does not save you. A person whose name is Christ saves you. And you are saved because He has taken possession of you. And He has promised not to lose you. But we can come into the assembly of the saints. Or we could put it in modern lingo and say we can join the church and become church members. And your church membership is not going to save you. People can come into the covenant community and experience the benefits and the blessings of the covenant and not possess eternal life. They can be seen as, act as, confess to be people of God, but unless they have been born again from above, they have not become children of God. They've not come to possess the gift of eternal life. They've not come to be raised in the life of Christ. Amen? So Paul says don't fall into the same place that your fathers fell into. Those that you're reading about in the Scripture. Don't go to the same place. Don't get arrogant and puffed up in your belief system and your self-righteousness. Don't use your liberty as an excuse for vice at the harm of others because when you begin to do that that begins to take on the nature of idolatry and and all of these other things that we are to resist verse 12 therefore remember you need to understand what the therefore is therefore Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So, here is the truth. God will allow you to be tempted. Is everybody clear on that? Has anyone ever been tempted here? God allowed you to be tempted. He will allow you to be tempted. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able to bear. But with the temptation that he allows to come to you, God makes a way of escape. Do you get that? How are we tempted? Well, the answer to that is in the scripture. James 1 verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Some translations will use the word lust by his own lusts and enticed. His own lusts and desires. So temptation is never an excuse for our sin. For God always makes a way of escape. And when we're tempted with our own lusts and desires, or or I should say we we are tempted with our own lusts and desires. Now, the enemy knows us. It's not even the devil, okay? I don't know if you guys uh, remember Flip Wilson. The devil made me do it. He was a comedian. And that was a big thing. It used to be t-shirts and things, bumper stickers. The devil made me do it. Now, the reality is, we are the ultimate culprit. It's our own lusts and desires you 're not tempted by something you don 't desire you 're not tempted by something that you can't can't be tempted by right so how many of you uh, how many of you see what's a um, how many of you love anchovies How many of you would never eat an anchovy in your life okay so do you think you could ever be tempted to be gluttonous when it comes to anchovies no because you, you have no desire for anchovies, right? The, something you have no desire for, something that just doesn't appeal to you, is not, you're not going to be tempted by that. It's not in your flesh to be tempted by that. The enemy could bring it to you all day long, and he's not going to be able to tempt you with it, because it's just not your desire. It's not something you would want. So what are the things that we find ourselves tempted by? Yeah, bluebell. Now you put, a, you put three gallons of tin roof sundae in my freezer and I'm telling tell you what, I'm going to be hard pressed to not be going to that thing and, and eating it, even though I know it's bad for me and I shouldn't do it. It's lawful for me to eat it, but it's not helpful and it's not edifying for me. When I take my blood sugar reading, my little glucose meter tells me, you shouldn't have eaten that bluebell, Right? So we're drawn away and we're enticed by our own desires. So temptation is never an excuse for sin. We are the ultimate culprit. So for the believer, Satan only has the power of suggestion. Here's the truth that you need to understand. To the degree that your mind has been renewed to the truth, that is the degree to which you can be tempted. This is why Paul is adamant throughout his writings in the New Testament, that what we need to do is renew our mind to the truth. So remember, we are created in the image of God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I believe that we're triune beings. I believe we're, we're spirit, we're soul, and we're body. So when God gives to me the gift of eternal life, my spirit is immediately transformed. It comes alive and is conformed to the Spirit of God. My body doesn't change. Now, I'm not saying, you know, God, I believe in physical healing. God can heal. But I'm saying, you know, uh, if, if I get saved and I'm bald and I want hair, I don't get saved and then look in the mirror and I've got this beautiful, you know, waft of hair up there. It doesn't happen. I, I got saved, bald, I'm going to be bald after I get saved. My physical body didn't change, but my spirit man did change. And somewhere between my physical body and my spirit is my soul. It's a Greek word suke. It means the seed of the mind, the will, and the emotions. And so the Bible commands me to be being transformed by the renewing of my mind. So it's that soulish part of me, it's my mind, my will, and my emotions that need to be renewed to the image of God, to the truth, to the Son, right? This is our destiny of Romans 8.29, that we are, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. How does that conforming take place? It takes place over the course of our life. As my mind is renewed, I'm being transformed And I'm being conformed to the image of the Son. So now my walking and my talking and the the things I do and the way I live is, is different. Not because I'm trying to get saved, but because I have been saved. I used to have an old man who was trapped in sin and death. Now I have become a partaker of the divine nature. In the new man, I have the life of Christ in me. Now I need to renew my mind to that reality. And it's going to change the way, I, the way I live my life and the way I talk. Not because I'm trying to earn something or climb some spiritual ladder to achieve nirvana. No, it's because I've already been saved. And now my life needs to manifest that reality. And so the, 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 the devil only has the power of suggestion over you. He can't make you do anything. Our ultimate escape from sin is Christ. Before we're born again, we're trapped in this nature of sin and death. And our sinfulness is not based on our behavior, but it's based on that nature or what kind we are. And our behavior is a product of that. So in my new birth, when I become a joined to the new man in Christ, my behavior should become a product of that. It doesn't change all at once. doesn't change overnight changes over the course of your life. You plant a seed in the ground, and in a number of years, I don't know how many, it's different for every tree, for every seed, but in a number of years, there should be fruit manifesting on the tree. When you're born again, and God implants the seed of His Word, who is Christ in you, I don't know how long, exactly what it's going to look like, to what degree, but in time, over the course of years, There should be fruit beginning to manifest from your life. Every tree is known by its fruit. So this is why we must be born again. And this is why we can now take the way of escape. So before the new birth, there was no escape from sin or our sin nature. But now in Christ, we're free from sin, no longer bound by sin's grip. We can walk away from temptation because Christ has set us free. The practice of our life no longer has to be one of sin. We can now practice righteousness through Christ. It doesn't mean we won't ever make mistakes. It doesn't mean we won't have sinful thoughts. It doesn't mean we won't commit sinful actions. But my sinful thoughts and my sinful actions that may may come to me, that may take place in my life, don't define me. Christ defines me. If the practice of my life is sinful thoughts and sinful behaviors... But I keep telling you, but I'm really a Christian. If you really love me, you would would question me and say, but Pastor Jeff, something doesn't seem right. How can we help you? And I may need help. And love would obligate you to do that for me. So what happens if I don't take the escape, and I sin. First John nine says we have an advocate with the Father. If we confess our sin, He's faithful to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But I need to understand this. Sin doesn't define me. Christ does. The work Christ finished on the cross, He finished for me, and I need to be reminded of that finished cross. I don't live in sin any longer. I live in Christ. Sin is foreign to me, so I need to put that away. What about my past sin? Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Past, present, or future. Listen, past sin, present sin, future sin, it's been taken care of. That doesn't give you a license to sin. That has set you free from sin. The good news is you're not in sin any longer. And you're not known according to the flesh. If the Spirit lives in you, Romans 8 9, if the Spirit of God lives in you, then you are no longer in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit. In 2 Corinthians 5 16 says, We know no man any longer according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So, what about my past sin? It's gone. What about my future sin? It's gone. <laughs> It's done away with in Christ. What do I need to understand? That it's finished. That sin defines me no longer. Sin is not who I am. It's not my nature. It's foreign to me. I shouldn't have anything to do with it. I shouldn't want to have anything to do with it. If I fall into it, I need to get out of it. If I need help getting out of it, I need to say, Help! Somebody help me! Get out of this situation I'm in. Just as if you had fallen into a body of deep water and you didn't know how to swim, you would want someone to help you get out of that so that you wouldn't die, you wouldn't drown. Listen, when we fall into sinful patterns and sinful behaviors, we should cry out for help. But when we respond to to that need and we come to help those who have fallen, we don't come with self-righteousness, we don't come with condemnation, we don't come with an I told you so spirit, we come with a spirit of gentleness and meekness lest we be tempted with the very same things that that they've fallen into we come with that humble attitude, understanding but by the grace of God I could be in that very place we come with that kind of spirit with that kind of attitude to help that person to pick them back up, to put them back on their feet they didn't lose their salvation, they just they just fell and we need to be able to help people up how do i know that i'm going to make it and not fall away how do i know i'm really an apple tree what if i'm just really a thorn bush you know it's winter time and there's no leaves and we all kind of look the same you know what if i'm just fruitless Here's a promise in being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.6. You won't fall away because God promised to complete the work he began in you. Not the work you began, the work he began. Now if you think your salvation is the work you began, you may come to a point in your life and realize... um, i got a problem here. But if we understand what the gospel communicates that, that our salvation is a work God began, the promise of God is that He who has begun a good work and you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You might be a tree in the winter time right now and maybe, maybe the season you're in has fooled you, has begun to cause you to question whether you're really a fruit tree or not? Whether you're really a good tree or not? Listen, the Scripture's advice is, is to hold on and trust God because your season will change. The spring will come and new life will spring forth. And the summer will come and the, the leaves will bud and the tree will grow and the fruit will come forth and you will see a time of harvest. When God made a promise to Job that seed time and harvest would never end as long as the earth remained, that promise was not just about physical fruit trees. I believe that promise applies to us as the trees of the Lord planted by rivers of living water. Trust God through your winter season. Trust Him for the spring of new life. Trust in His finished work. Amen? Then in verse, I want you to see this. When Paul says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Why does Paul tell them to flee from idolatry? He tells them to flee from idolatry for the purposes of God's glory. Now I'm going I'm to bring this conversation way out here. There's all kinds of reasons. There are, listen, there's lots of reasons associated with that command that we are to flee from idolatry. But the end, the ultimate reason we should flee idolatry, the ultimate reason we should take the way of escape, the ultimate reason that we should be willing to lay down our rights for the weaker brother, the ultimate reason for all of these things... It's really the glory of God. There are reasons that touch our lives personally, that affect us personally in real and practical ways. But at the end of it all, it's not about those things. It's really not about me. It's really about God. This is really all about God's glory. And there's a reason why that we need to pull out and get a bigger focus on God's glory. Because if we stay with this microscopic view of all things and it's all about us in my immediate world around me i never can see anything bigger than that i can't see the ultimate end of all things which is the glory of god it's going to hinder me in the way that i am able to relate to one another remember paul's communicating this with the one another in view this is not a, about selfish Ambition, selfish reasons, Paul saying stop that and begin to look at something bigger than yourself. And so when we focus, when we focus on the glory of God, it takes the focus from ourself. When we're focused on God's glory and not ourself, we can much easier, listen, release our rights. When I understand that this is really about God's glory, I can much easier release my rights doesn't mean they're not my right. doesn't mean I don't have rights. But I'm willing to release my rights for the glory of God. It's much easier for me to reconsider my brother or my sister. Yeah, you know, that might... But, you know, it's my right in Christ. Oh, wait a minute. You know? I need to reconsider my brother and my sister. It's much easier for me to resist temptation... But but what if no one knows? You know, no one's going to know. Oh, but God knows. Heaven knows. The angels know. The demons know. Yeah, but you know, no one in my life knows. So as long as I don't get caught, who cares? God cares. So we resist temptation much easier when we have the glory of God in view not just how it's going to impact my immediate life. We can risk our comfort and our convenience much easier when we have the glory of God in view than just what the direct impact's going to be on me. We can rejoice in all things much easier when we have the glory of God in view. Because the promise of God is this. He makes all things beautiful in His time. He does all things for His glory. God, I don't understand that. It doesn't matter whether we understand it or not. This is what the Scripture communicates to us. So I say, you know what, God, I really want to understand, but if you choose to not clue me in, I'm still going to rejoice. Not in my circumstance. Not in my tragedy. Not in my trial. Not in my tribulation. I'm going to rejoice in you. In spite of those things. If I'm focused on God's glory, it's much easier for me to do that than not. And if I'm focused on God's glory, it's much easier for me to rest in His grace. When Paul writes in his second letter to the Corinthians, and he tells them, he writes about when, when God, he goes to God and he says, God, will you take this thorn that's in my flesh away from me? God, will you take this thorn that's in my flesh away from me? God, do you hear me? I'm asking you. He says, three times I went to the Lord. And God refused to remove the thorn in my flesh. But God says, Paul, here's what you need to understand. My grace is sufficient for you. For in your weakness, my strength is made perfect. And Paul learned to rest in God's grace. Paul learned to rest in God's all-sufficient grace. When we're focused on the glory of God, church, it's much easier for us to rest in His grace. Whether we understand why God does what He does, why things happen the way they happen, His grace, His grace is sufficient. I'm going to stop right there. So we're going to break at verse 14. Because there's too much to cover. And I... Have reconsidered my brothers and my sisters and decided not to keep you here till one o'clock just to finish this chapter. But that's a good stopping point, it's a good place to break. So, Paul says, Look, look at these examples that we are not to follow, don't seek after these things. In fact, flee from idolatry, he says. And understand that God allows temptation to come to you, but with the temptation, he makes a way of escape. And that now in Christ, unlike before, you had no power over sin. You had no power over any of that. It didn't matter how strong your will was and how well behaved you were. You were lost in sin. You you were a slave to sin and you had no will to oppose it. But now in Christ, you've been set free from sin. Not in terms of your behavior, but in terms of your nature. And now your nature is to begin to manifest and show forth how? Through our behavior, through the way we talk, through the way we walk. And we don't just do that for self-serving reasons. We don't even just do that to be kind to our brother or considerate to our brother or our sister. Paul says the real reason, the ultimate reason, the reason above all reasons that we do these things is for the glory of God. In fact, later on at the end of this chapter, Paul will write these words, Do all To the glory of God. All that you do, do to the glory of God. Let's all stand. Now, before we began this, I had you pray. And I had you just in your heart and in your mind... Ask God to mold you and to shape you. I think there's a, a video I'm going to show you next week. I, I kind of wish I would have shown it to you today, but I didn't. Actually, you can find it on Christ Fellowship's Facebook page. Um, it's, it's uh, about a guy named Bob Sorge. I actually saw Bob Sorge back in the mid-90s right after his, uh, he lost his voice. He was a pastor and a worship leader. And um, it might not sound like a, you know, it's, it was a very powerful thing. Um, anyways, I hadn't had any contact with him in quite a while, and then this video showed up. Um, And and we'll watch it next week, we'll have that ready and we'll just watch that kind of at the beginning of where we're gonna go. But in this video, he he says that my sister asked me a question one time, Can you find a God of uh, of redemption in the book of Job? Can you find a God of redemption and mercy in the book of Job? And and Bob Sorge's answers to his sister was yes, I think I can. And his answer was this, God could have left Job alone. We'll watch the video next week, but as we get ready to close in prayer, and we've talked about these things, and we've talked specifically about the glory of God, and how the Bible communicates to us that that all things are for His glory. All things work for His glory. And when that, listen, when I say that, I didn't say some things, most things, only the good things. It says all things. That's a hard thing to comprehend. Very often, a very hard thing to comprehend. But here's what I want us to do as we close in prayer. Job said these words, they're recorded in the book named after him. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. We sing a song called, Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When God is giving, I submit to you, we don't have any problem blessing his name. But when we go through seasons of life when it seems like God is taking away from us, however that looks in your life, it becomes much more of a challenge to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. But His name is no less worthy to be blessed in those seasons when it seems like there is more takeaway than there is giving. My challenge to you, church, is that we find it within ourselves by the grace of God, by the life and the power of the Holy Spirit, to be able to stand in the midst of anything and say from a heart of faith, from a heart of worship, and a heart of love, blessed be the name of the Lord that we could stand in the midst of anything and say, God, I don't know how and I don't understand, but God, I know that you will be glorified in all things. And I trust you. And I give, I give everything to you in that trust. Father, I pray that You would give us the grace to be able to utter those words from a heart of faith. That, Lord, the glory of God is not just something we rejoice in, not just something we're able to see and able to bless Your name because of. Lord, when we live in times and seasons when it seems like everything and everyone is giving to us, But Lord, we all go through times and seasons of our life when it seems like everyone and everything is being taken from us. And in those times, God, can we stand and can we say from a heart of faith, a heart of worship and a heart of love, blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't understand, God. I don't know why, but I bless your name because I know that you alone are worthy And I trust you, God, even though I have no clue what my next step is. Even though I have no clue what the answer to my question is. Lord, I don't even know what my questions are anymore. But I know this. You are the Lord, the God of all creation. You stand above everything. There is not one thing, not even a sparrow, fall to the ground apart from the will of the Father. I trust you, God, with my life. I trust you with all things. And I trust that you will work all things for your glory. Blessed, blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. 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 Praise God. So I challenge you church to get on your face before God and ask God to give you the grace to walk that out. And if you're here today and maybe you've got something in your life that you're struggling with and you need someone that will just agree with you in prayer. You don't even have to, to, to voice what it is. You might say, you know what? I don't even want to tell you what I'm struggling with. I just need someone to agree. I want to be able to be in that place that you're talking about. And I'm not there right now, but I want you to pray with me that I will be. If that's you and you want prayer for anything, please come and we will pray. Amen. If not, be blessed. Have a great day. The Lord bless you, keep you. May his face shine upon you. And I love you. Thank you so much. God bless you.